You know, before we dismiss the kids for Children's Church, I did want to, you know, I talk about recognizing elements around us that point to Christmas. I just wanted to do, share one quick story as they go. Does anybody know the story of the Christmas tree? Why we have the Christmas tree? It's because of a man who loved Jesus. It was in Germany many, many years ago. There was this community that were worshiping the god Thor. And they had this giant oak tree in the middle of town. And they would worship Thor at this tree and they would say, that is the oak of, of Thor, our mighty god Thor. If anyone would harm that tree, Thor is going to come down and smite him with his hammer. Well, a missionary wanted to go over there and share the gospel with these people. A missionary by the name of Boniface. And uh, so he comes to town. He sees people taking branches that have fallen from the oak of Thor, considering them holy relics and hanging them from the rafters in their houses. And he says, Thor isn't a real god, guys. Jesus is. And he begins to share the gospel. And they begin to get ready to run him out of town. So Boniface does the unthinkable. He says, well, if I'm going to prove to them that I worship the one true God, I'm going to go get me an axe. And he takes an axe to that oak of Thor. Everybody gathers around from the town, but not to watch him cut the tree down, because they're, they're thinking Thor's about to show up and put this crazy Christian down. And so they keep watching. Boniface keeps chopping. That tree falls down, and everybody just holds their breath. And nothing happens. And Boniface says, I told you. And he shares the gospel with the whole town. And he says, this tree that fell needs to no longer be your symbol. And then he points to an evergreen tree that was standing nearby. And he says, this is your symbol now. As it stands evergreen, just like Jesus, is forever alive in our hearts when we believe. And so let this be your symbol from now on as we worship Jesus. And the whole town got saved that day. And so what they began to do is they began to cut down those evergreen trees, bring them into their houses, and hang them by the tippy top from their rafters. And so we do that now. We don't hang the trees from our rafters. Anybody hang the Christmas tree from your ceiling? That'd be your true German. But they don't. They, they would bring them in their houses and set them up as a reminder, as it points to heaven, a reminder that Jesus is the only way and that he is always alive within us. And these symbols are everywhere. From the Christmas tree to the candy cane, even the reason the date is December 25th. It's not what you've been traditionally heard to take the place of a pagan holiday. There's all these things point to Jesus. We all need a Linus in our lives to remind us what the real meaning of Christmas is all about. So as you look around you this Christmas season, recognize Jesus everywhere. Well... We're going to talk this morning about the Magi. And I have a question to, to, to ask you all as we get started this morning. If you were a Magi, one of the wise men, one of the three kings, as we traditionally say in the song, although we don't really know how many guys there were, if you were one of the Magi, what would you bring to Jesus? And it couldn't be something you go and buy. It has to be something you already have within your house or your shed or something in your possession already. What would you bring 
to Jesus. What would you consider worthy of an offering to bring to Jesus? I mean, some of you probably racking, okay, what's the most valuable thing I have? Maybe my car, maybe, uh, maybe you got like a really valuable baseball card somewhere. Maybe it, it's something that, that you don't you know, want anybody to know you have. You got it locked up in a safety deposit box somewhere. What would you bring to Jesus if you were one of the magi and you don't have gold, frankincense, or myrrh? What are you bringing to Jesus that is a worthy gift are you the little drummer boy and you're going to show up and you're going to play a song because banging on a drum is the perfect gift for a baby. As a, you know, some of your mothers are smiling. You don't want a, some random dude coming in and banging a drum when your baby's sleeping. But what is a gift you would bring to, the mag, or to Jesus if you were one of the Magi? Well, think, as you think about that, open your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 807. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. You see, when we get to Matthew chapter 2, a lot has transpired in the Christmas story. The angel Gabriel came to Mary, told her that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. And then she became pregnant. And then an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Mary's baby is the Son of God. So Joseph took Mary uh, they got married, and, uh, and then they went to Bethlehem as a census was being taken. They registered there to, to, to you know, say what part of the nation they were from so they could pay their taxes properly. Uh, and then they gave birth there in Bethlehem. And then a star, uh, or not a star, an angel appeared to a bunch of shepherds in a field nearby. And those shepherds gathered together. They saw the heavenly host Praising God. And the heavenly hosts are the angel armies. So the angel armies show up and begin to praise God. And so those, when they leave, the shepherds gather together. They head into Bethlehem, find Jesus, worship Jesus, and then head out of town. And as they head out of town, they tell everybody that they see about Jesus, the Messiah. And then some time passes. We learn from the passage, Mary and Joseph set up shop there in Bethlehem. They buy a house. Maybe Joseph becomes the Bethlehem carpenter. And some time, a little bit of time goes by, probably a couple years. And this scene we get in Matthew chapter 2 shows us a little bit more about the story. So look at Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot in there about the magi. Some of you may think this is the first time they appear, magi, in Scripture. Some of you may know from you know, years past, we may have talked about this, but this isn't the first place in the Scripture magi appear. Magi appear all the way back in the book of Daniel. They were a uh, class of people, a rank, a school of thought uh, in the Babylonian Empire. And uh, Daniel, the prophet, was promoted over all of the magi and given the title, you can go back and look it up in the book of Daniel, chief magi, chief magi, which is very significant, I think, being promoted and given that title, chief magi, because not too long after that, he's given a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he gives, he's given this prophecy about the coming Messiah by the angel Gabriel. 
So Gabriel comes to Daniel, chief magi, gives him a prophecy about the coming Jesus, and then Gabriel shows up again, gives Mary the information about Jesus coming to her, and then not too long after that, a couple of years, magi show up there. I think it's all related. And so these magi, these wise men from the east, come to Jerusalem. Now we find out they've been following a star. So if what, is, what I think is happening is, is Daniel probably passed the information on in his school of magi saying, anticipate, this is what's coming. I was given this prophecy, Messiah's going to come way down the road. Y'all need to be on the lookout, need to be getting ready. He's teaching all his guys this. They're looking for signs of the coming Messiah, and they see in the sky a star that wasn't there before. And what would have happened is they would have recognized that something was in the sky that wasn't there before, and they would have studied it for a period of time. They would have studied it for probably a significant amount of time to figure out what where the star could have come from, how it appeared, uh, compared old star charts to ones they got now, they would have seen, okay, well, it's kind of moving. So, so if it's moving, where is it headed? And they would have studied it for a while. And then having studied it for a while, along with the message of the coming Messiah, realizing this is a sign of the coming Messiah, they would have said, okay, we got to go and see him. we got to go and see the new king of the Jews who has arrived, the son of God. And so they would have figured out then, okay, which one of us, Magi, is going to go on this journey? And so they would have figured out, maybe had you know, an election or maybe a seniority type of deal or whatever, but how many of them, which of them were going to go, how big of an entourage were they going to take, what kind of gifts were they going to take? And so they would have been this process after the process of figuring out the star was in the sky. So again, this would have taken a significant amount of time to figure all of this out. I don't know if you've ever been in committee meetings, but stuff doesn't happen very quickly in those. And so this would have taken some time to get all this done. And then once they finally figured all of this out, they would have had to just taken the trip with their big old entourage. And in the book of Ezra chapter 7, Ezra tells us that journey from Babylon to Jerusalem is about 900 miles. And it would have taken, it took Ezra, in Ezra chapter 7, walking that, riding that a little bit of the ways. It took him four months to make that journey. And so if you're going that journey with the Magi, with a bigger entourage, it may have taken just a little bit longer than four months to go from one spot to the next. In addition to all the time it took to figure out who's going, figure out what you're taking, figure out the entourage that's going, plus the time to figure figure out the sky and the stars, it would have taken a significant amount of time. Best we can gather, not just from that, but later on in the passage, It would have taken about 18 to 24 months, give or take. And so they go on this journey, and they show up in Jerusalem, the capital city. Look at verse 2. They were saying, all around town, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so they just show up in Jerusalem, and they're asking this question all over town. Where is the new king of the Jews? Where is the new king of the Jews? And they don't realize at first what kind of stir this is going to cause. Because look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. Herod the king. Now, the way Rome set up their regional areas, they, 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 over a particular region, they put a guy who was called the king, who had certain responsibilities, and they also appointed a guy who was called the governor, who had other responsibilities. But the governor and the king work in the same region. Both had pretty much absolute power. 
I mean, they could do whatever they want. They could kill whoever they want. As long as Caesar got his money and they didn't try to revolt against Caesar, Caesar pretty much let them do whatever they wanted to do. And Herod was one of those guys. This Herod's historical name is Herod the Great. Not because he was a good man, but because he did big things and honestly killed a lot of people. He did some good things. I mean, he built um, some, some really great stuff there in Jerusalem, but he did some terrible things. Because we know from history, he was extremely paranoid. So he was constantly afraid of somebody coming to overthrow him, of somebody coming to kill him and unseat him from being king, to the point that he killed a whole bunch of his own family because he was afraid of that. Some of his kids, uh, his favorite wife. Now, if y'all have a favorite wife, we need to have a conversation. It needs to be your only wife. Your only wife needs to be your favorite wife. But Herod killed his favorite wife. And so now the, the, these wise men come into town. Herod could be on his throne. The seat next to him for the queen is empty because she's dead because he killed her because he thought she was going to overthrow him because he's scared constantly of somebody overthrowing him. And now here come these magi, this big entourage into town saying, where is the new king of the Jews? So when it says Herod's greatly troubled, that word literally means uh, distraught to the point of shaking, like so worried that he's shaking, so anxious that he's angry and he's shaking. And so when it says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, do you think that Jerusalem was troubled, was distraught, worried, in the same way Herod was because they don't want a new king? Or could it be that Jerusalem was troubled because Herod's troubled? Because when Herod gets troubled, everybody dies. So, so Herod is worried, and Jerusalem's worried. See, if I'm a guy in the market, and I hear these wise men, these magi come in saying, where's the new king of the Jews? I'm thinking, y'all be quiet. Shh. Don't let Herod find out. Last time, three of my family died. Y'all just go, go to that. I don't like that. That guy's my competition. You go talk to him. Don't say any of that around me. So Herod's troubled. Jerusalem's troubled. These guys are asking this question all around town. And so what does Herod do? He does a little research. Look at verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he brings in the experts, and he says, okay, he's asking about the king of the Jews, asking about the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Where is he supposed to be born? And they know right off the bat, verse 5. They told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from the prophet Micah. But Bethlehem was a, a historically famous city. I mean, Boaz and Ruth are from Bethlehem. Great King David was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just a handful of miles away from Jerusalem where they are right now. So, I mean, it's just in their backyard. It's just right there. And so the scribes and the, the uh, priests say it's in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And so Herod hears this and, and all of the conniving and all of the conspiring and all of the planning begins to roll through his head. How can I... If the Messiah, if the, this new king is really born, how, how can I stop him from being king? So look at what he does in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. That's important for something later. He figures out how long the star has been in the sky, which we find out later it's been two years. 
but he summons the wise men secretly. So they've been going all around town saying what they're saying. They probably came into his, th- his throne room area in the court, and all the people were there. Uh, and so Herod sends for him, y'all send your, your entourage, y'all, y'all leave them, and just you guys come and talk to me. You, I just want you and me. We, we can talk, you know, king to king, important person to important. Let's, let's just have a conversation about what's going on. And he says this, uh, verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, we can read that now, and it's like when you're watching a movie and, and you start saying to the screen, don't go in that room because you know what's in that room. Like, you know the bad guys in that room. Like, you're anticipating, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Don't go there. I know what's about to happen. We can read this and say, don't trust Herod. This guy's crazy. This guy's nuts. Do not listen to anything, Herod. He does not want to come and worship Jesus. Do not trust Herod. And so Herod's saying this to the wife. I just want to come and worship the new king. I will gladly give him my throne. Humbly step down and let him take it. Never mind my, my you know, empty queen seat next to me or the, 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 the myriad of executioners I've hired on my payroll. Don't listen to them. But, but I want to come and, and just worship this new king, this child. And so the Magi hear this and receive this from Herod. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the Magi don't, we don't get any acknowledgement that they believed Herod or didn't believe Herod. It just says they listened to him, and then they left. And they looked up in the sky, and the star was moving again, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, it'd be kind of hard to see you know, the star right over a house kind of situation. Maybe it came to rest over the region of Bethlehem, and they may have heard Herod's conversation with the scribes and, and priests, and they made a beeline for Bethlehem. But as I was studying this, it brought something to my mind, you know, being led by God in this way by, by a sign in the sky because there's lots of discussion about what possibly this star could have been whether it was an actual star that God had put in the sky since the creation of the world and it was moving or it was a star that God made just for this moment that appeared and then was moving or, or some other guys suggested this was an angel that was in the sky and was just shining bright and then was moving I tend to think actually it's the glory of God Because it makes me think of God leading the Israelites in the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. His Shekinah glory leading the people to where they were going. Because here we have something bright that God had put there that was leading the people to where they needed to go. It could have been one of those other things. It may well have been an angel or it could have been a star God created just for the moment. But however it shakes out, God placed this thing in the sky to lead these magi to Jesus, to the new king, to his son. And so they see this thing move across the sky. And now I love this verse, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, let me try to explain a little bit here of this language. They rejoiced exceedingly. That's excessive rejoicing, 
okay? Excessive rejoicing. But then it says, with great joy. See, if they're already excessively rejoicing, the author probably didn't need to put in there with great joy, with a whole lot of joy. If they're exceedingly rejoicing, obviously they got a lot of joy, with great amounts of joy. He's putting it there for emphasis. I mean, these guys are going nuts with joy. It's like a kid on Christmas morning. It's like... Uh, it's like when your team gets to the World Series, it's, it's like when something super exciting happens and you just can't control it. Like rejoicing exceedingly. You ever seen somebody rejoice exceedingly with great joy? I mean, just explode. with. I mean, maybe it's somebody who's normally very reserved and the joy just comes out of them. And so here are these guys, that's the image here of these guys. Quite possibly waiting, you know, centuries, magi, for this moment. The star comes and it finally stops. And they look and they see the house. And there's the house that the Messiah is in that they've been waiting for. And it explodes out of them with great joy. They just cannot contain themselves. And they get to the house. Verse 11. <laughs> Try to picture this in your mind, right? These guys, however many there are, we know there's more than one because it talks about them in the plural. Traditionally, there's three. We got three over here in our little display, but it doesn't say anything about there being three guys. Uh, there were three gifts, but it doesn't say anything about three guys. But they go to the house, look at verse 11, with exceedingly great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, if you're Mary... And a bunch of strange men with exceedingly great joy bust into your house. What's your first reaction going to be? You ever seen a grown man, very reserved, express exceedingly great joy? And then start jumping all around your baby? Who's the Messiah, son of God? It's a little bit different than when the shepherds came in a couple years before. These guys come in, nice clothes come in with these treasure boxes and they just walk into the house and fall down and start worshiping. Shock. First, probably fear. Why are you coming into my house? But shock, nonetheless. And they begin to worship Jesus. And they bring out their treasure boxes. It says opening their treasures. That word literally means treasure boxes. They open their treasure boxes and in there they got gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now there's been a whole books written about these three things. You know, there could be symbolism there. Uh, it's not told from this, in this section about any of that symbolism. Um, traditionally, these three are just royal gifts. Even in Scripture, all three are related to kingly gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they offer these things to Mary and Jesus and Joseph as well, even though Joseph isn't there at this moment. He's probably off at work. Um, and the traditional thinking is later on they're going to flee from, from, from the wrath of Herod that Joseph may very well have used these gifts to fund their journey. I mean, as a carpenter, he wouldn't have had a whole lot of money, but he may have used this to fund their trip down to Egypt and their time there and coming back to Nazareth. But the wise men come in, the magi come in, lay it all down, offer it, and in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to focus on one word there in verse 11. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. They offered him gifts. 
That word's very unique. They offered, they gave it to him, is the way we would say it. But what that literally means is they, you bring something into someone's presence. You bring something into someone's presence. You're offering it to them. You're bringing it into their presence to give to them. And so as we think about, going back to that original question I asked you, if you were Magi, what would you offer to Jesus? What would you bring to Jesus? What would you bring into that, you know, that definition, into his presence? There's a problem that arises because we are always in Jesus' presence. What can we bring into his presence if we're always in his presence? What is something new we can give him that if he's always with us, he's always has these, he always has these things in his presence? Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm always with you. I'm never not with you, Jesus is saying. And so if we are always in Jesus' presence, then how can we bring something new into his presence? What can we offer him that he doesn't already have access to? How does it work to offer something to someone, to bring it into his presence, if we're always there? Well, Paul mentioned something about this concept In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or offering, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying bring your bodies, bring yourself as a living offering, as a living sacrifice to God. Bring and allow God to take the offering of yourself. Everything you're doing, everything you're saying, let that be the offering to God. And everything you do and say begins within you in your mind that you have to think it to do it. You've got to think it to say it. Some of us need to think more before we say it. But it's got to pass through our mind before it comes out of us in our actions and our words. And so what if then, what if our thoughts were to be our offerings, the things we bring into God's presence. Let me break it down a little more. What if what you allowed to occupy your mind today is what you offered to Jesus? Would your thoughts be an acceptable offering to the Almighty Son of God? I mean, what tends to occupy our minds? Work, school, Frustrations, anger, wants, selfishness, the need to control, offense, being offended, constantly offended at at issues and situations, improprieties, less than holy streaming opportunities. What occupies our mind on a consistent basis? Is that an acceptable offering to God? what we allow to occupy. The, the enemy can bring thoughts and, and temptations, and it's not sin until we allow it to settle in and focus on it. When we begin to focus on it, sin begins. What do you allow, allow to occupy your minds? All of those other things that really are symptoms and side effects of the world we live in, which honestly is the very reason Paul wrote in the next verse. He said, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern, you may figure out what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't allow all those other things to occupy your mind to the point of, of, uh, of, of complete focus, of obsession. And that's all we think about are these things. We ought to think about some of those things, obviously work and school and being around some of these people. We ought to think about those things from the perspective of, of Jesus, him being the filter through which we interact with all of those other things. But if we interact with all of those things and have removed Jesus from the equation, it becomes a major problem. And we begin to function in the midst of the work, in the midst of the school, in the midst of our homes and families. We begin to function in these areas without Jesus doing it on our own, which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. And we begin to walk as though we don't need Jesus. So then when we stumble and an issue arises and a problem comes up and our anxiety goes through the roof and we can't figure out why we're in the middle of all this mess, it's because we pulled Jesus out of it and didn't allow him to guide us through it. We need Jesus there. He's the only way we can make it through this. So when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, don't be like them, don't copy them. You Christian ought not to be entertained like the world. They don't know me. They don't know Jesus. You ought to be entertained differently. You Christian, you don't act like, you're not supposed to act like everybody else. You're not supposed to think like everybody else. You're not supposed to speak like everybody else. You're not supposed to love like everybody else. You're not supposed to forgive like everybody else. You're supposed to be different. So he says, don't be conformed. Don't be like them. Don't mimic their activity. Be different. But then we ask the question, okay, how is it possible then to be in the world and not of the world, to be in the world but not be conformed to the world so that then I can allow the, the, the right things to occupy my mind and I can offer my mind as an offering to Jesus? How is it possible to do this? Honestly, the same way the Magi did. They didn't allow the manipulations of evil King Herod to mess with their minds. They didn't bother with it. They didn't think about it. They didn't allow it to guide their, their decisions. It says they listened to him and walked away. They listened to him and walked away. And what did they do? They, did, did they allow Herod's recommendation to continue to walk through their minds? No, they just kept their minds on Jesus and got to him as quickly as possible. They kept their minds on Jesus and got to him as quickly as possible, which is what we ought to be doing. We ought to keep our minds on Jesus and get to him as quickly as possible. You say, man, I'm having a hard day. I'm having a frustrating day. My mind is going in places it doesn't need to be going. Get to Jesus. How can I, how can I make it through? How can, how can I prevent this anxiety from overwhelming me? Get to Jesus. You say, I need help. Gather people around you to help you get to Jesus. Jesus didn't put us in this world to go alone. He put us in here to be together, to, to walk together. Even when he sent out his disciples to bring the message to the surrounding region, he sent them in pairs because you're not supposed to do it by yourself. Even Jesus, son of God, what's the first thing he did when he started his public ministry? He got a small group together to do it together. Gather your people around you and do it together. Get 
to Jesus. So that you can begin to, to as Paul would say then, uh, what does he say there in verse 1 of, of Romans Chapter 12, present your bodies as living, be a living sacrifice, be transformed in your mind. Not conformed to the world, transformed, because your mind is made new with Jesus. So then we can offer, bring into his presence an offering worth making. So we then need to offer what we have ourselves, offer what we have to Jesus by making what we have worth offering. Offer what you have to Jesus by making what you have worth offering. Does that mean you're going to be perfect? No, you're not. You're not. Don't expect yourself to be perfect. Don't expect everybody else to be perfect because they're not. Expectations are going to ruin your life and your relationships. Offer what you have to Jesus by making what you have worth offering. Focus on Jesus. Allow him to transform you. Allow him to change you. Allow him to make you into who he wants you to be. And allow him to take what you have and make it worth offering. You see, Jesus gave everything in his coming and dying and raising. Jesus gave us everything. He offered everything. What do you offer to him? What do you offer to Jesus? Do you offer your life as a living sacrifice, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12? Do you offer uh, in anticipation, as, as those magi did, something extremely valuable in yourself? What do you offer to Jesus? That may mean you've got to sacrifice something you don't want to sacrifice. That may mean you've got to give up some habit you don't want to give up because you have been conformed to the world in in taking part in that activity. What do you need to offer to Jesus? You see, here in just a moment, we're going to take part in this Lord's Supper. And uh, it's very significant. Uh, it won't save you, uh, but it, what it represents is very significant. And so as we offer to Jesus, it involves getting our heart to a place of being prepared to offer everything to him. Being prepared to offer everything to Jesus. Not saying, well, I can continue to do this thing because it doesn't bother me like it bothers other people. I can continue to do this thing and go this route because it doesn't affect me like it affects other people. It affects you more than you know. That's a lie of the enemy to, to, that he uses to continue to chisel away at who God wants you to be. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. Listen to Jesus. Get to him. I, 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 I watched a video of a guy the other day some of you are going to think this is nuts, what this guy did. He, he got it. How many of you in here have an iPhone? Who has an iPhone? You know, in the settings in your iPhone, it's got a place that it is called screen time. Some of you may have it turned off because you, you don't want to even think about how much screen time you do. But you can go in there and see how much screen time that your device has been on, how many times it has lit up, been touched, all the apps that are open and for how long they're open. Some of you are freaking out right now. Oh, I didn't know that was there. Oh, my word. I don't want to see it. But what this guy did is he took his screen time, the total amount over the average of the last week of his screen time, and he replaced it all one day with Bible reading. He said, I'm not going to touch my phone that day, but whatever my average screen time was for the last seven days, that's going to be my Bible reading for today. For him, it was something like, I think it was six hours and 45 minutes. 
which when he saw that, he about died. Like, how am I going to read the Bible for six hours and 45 minutes? Uh, but he did it, and he documented it in, in this video. About an hour in, he was like, I'm about to die. Like, I, 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 I'm not prepared for this. He, he was a one-verse-a-day kind of guy, and, and he jumped in the deep end here with six hours and 45 minutes. Uh, but he got to the end, and he was a different person at the end of the video than he was at the beginning. Because the scripture transformed him in a way that his six hours and 45 minutes of screen time wasn't. His six hours and 45 minutes of screen time was conforming him. But the six hours and 45 minutes of time in the word transformed him. What are you prepared to offer to Jesus? What are you prepared to offer to Jesus? You see, as we get ready for this Lord's Supper, we need to think about what he offered to us. He did offer everything. He came to the world, his creation. The Son of God came to broken creation. Perfect God came to broken, sinful creation and died in our place for us. And then he rose from the dead. In this institution of the Lord's Supper, the beginning of it, the night before he was crucified, is what we remember. I mean, he talks about it in several of the Gospels, but what I'm going to read from during the Lord's Supper is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Paul kind of gives a breakdown of the Lord's Supper, uh, communion, or some people call it the Eucharist, uh, which is where the word Christmas comes from, Eucharist. Uh, it's a Catholic idea, the Eucharist, the, the uh, Christ's Mass is the one they held on Christmas, so Christ's Mass, Christmas is where that comes from, but uh, they would do this Lord's Supper as a, as a reminder to them. It's representative of what Jesus did. You see, if you're not a Christian, yeah, you can take the Lord's Supper, and it won't matter to you. It'll be a little cracker. It'll be a little juice, and it'll just make you want some more because it's just a little cracker and a little juice. But if you're a Christian, it means everything. It means everything because of what it represents. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, it is extremely important because of its representative nature. But I do want to be clear, the teaching is not in Scripture that these elements become the body and blood of Jesus. That's a teaching of a different church. But that's not in Scripture. These are just crackers. These are just, you know, a little bit of juice. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is, is that this represents something Jesus did for us. See, when we take the cracker, and what we're going to do is we're going to take the cracker and we're going to break it in our fingers and then we're going to eat it. The breaking of the cracker represents the breaking of Jesus' body. Not that his bones actually broke. They didn't. But his body broke because he died. And in his death, that's a, that's a reminder to us. His death is a reminder to us that our sins are paid. Because our sin, every time we sin, every single sin that we commit, we deserve to die for just one of them. For just one. And so if we sin a whole bunch, which, spoiler, you all sin a whole bunch. You do. I'm going to tell you as your pastor, y'all are a bunch of sinners. I'm, at the, I'm not saying I'm, per, I'm at the top of the list. Like, you got the sinner list, you got Pastor Josh, and then everybody else. We're all a bunch of sinners. Every sin deserves death. And so if we sin a bunch, we deserve to die a bunch. But that's the problem. We can't. We can only die once. God knew that problem, so he sent Jesus to die in our place. 
so that his one death, because he's God, his one death had enough value that it could pay for all of the sin debts, the death debts that we all owed, all of them, for all time. So that if anyone believes their, their sin payment, their sin debt that they owe is paid for forever. All of them gone, wiped out, forgiven uh, for all time. Never remembered. God said, cast as far as the east is from the west. They never touch. They're away from him. He doesn't hold it to your account any longer if we believe in Jesus. So Jesus dies. That broken cracker represents his broken body, the payment for our sins. But then the juice represents his blood which was very important because blood had to be spilled for the sealing of a covenant. The sealing of a covenant, a promise. It was the promise of eternal life if we believe. If we believe in Jesus, that, 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 that juice represents the sealing of that covenant, the, the guarantee of that promise. So the Lord's Supper taking part, breaking the cracker represents us remembering Jesus dying for our sins and then Drinking the juice is a reminder of the covenant, the promise. God had promised that he will give us eternal life if we believe. So that's what the Lord's Supper is. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 11, every time we take part in this, he says, we declare the gospel until the Lord comes, until the end. Because the Lord's Supper is the gospel. The cracker and the juice, it is the gospel. Jesus dying, Jesus Bring in the promise of God, granting us eternal life. Our sins forgiven. Every time. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 11, we need to do it with the right spirit. Right spirit. Don't come in thinking, oh, I'm good. I know I'm out there doing all kinds of stuff the rest of the week, but I'm going to come in here and I'm going to declare the gospel. I'm going to be a hypocrite, but that's totally fine. I'm going to be not, not, now we're all hypocrites because we're sinners, but it's the idea of I'm going to intentionally be a hypocrite. I'm going to do it on purpose. I'm going to make everybody think I'm all goody-goody, but I, I don't really care about that Jesus. I want to go out and live how I want to live. I just come to church to check the box and do all that. But we all within us cannot be perfect. And so all of us, I guarantee you, have either sinned this morning, last night, sitting in the green pews, the last three seconds, some of you already sinned. It's there. The sin is there. But the difference between those two kinds of people or one wants to follow Jesus and wants to repent, and the other one doesn't. They just want to go about living how they want to live and don't want to change and don't want to have anything to do with what Jesus wants them to do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that second set that are out there just doing whatever they want to do and don't care anything about Jesus, the judgment's going to come, and it's not going to be pretty. They're going to struggle. They're going to suffer. Not because God wants to smite them down, but because he's trying to turn them back. He wants everybody to come to him. Everybody. He actually says it in scripture. That's God's will is for everyone to get saved. If only they would believe. But they got to believe. And so this morning, if you're sitting there in those green pews, or you're watching online, we're going to do the Lord's Supper in just a second if you're watching online. Go get you something to drink, something to eat. You can take part. But if you don't know Jesus, do it right now, and then you can take part in the Lord's Supper for the very first time believing in Jesus. It'll change your life, experiencing that as a brand new believer. And so if you want to believe, hey, Jared, why don't you, why don't you go and come down here? Can you help me just a second? I want everybody to bow your heads right now. 
If anyone in the room needs to believe in Jesus, we want you to do it right now. Don't let it get past you. Maybe you've been wondering for a long time if you need to believe in Jesus. Maybe, you, maybe you've been worried and you, you're uncertain about what needs to happen, what needs to take place. But if you want to believe right now and you haven't before, I want you to look up at me and Jared. We're going to be looking, looking for faces. If you want to believe in Jesus... You don't know. You're worried. Maybe somebody's going to hear me look up. Maybe somebody's going to feel me move. But believe in Jesus right here, right now. Let this be your moment. And if you're watching online, you message us, and we'll get back to you as soon as the service is over. You want to believe in Jesus. This is your moment. The rest of you who already do believe in Jesus, let this be your moment of getting your heart right. Focused on him. Centered on him. Make it all about him. And prepare yourself for this. Offer to him yourself right now as a living sacrifice. God, I pray that we would be prepared for you. That we would allow you to prepare our hearts. That yeah, we get distracted sometimes, God, and we admit that. We get pulled down the path of, of mistakes and selfishness. And God, I, I, I willingly admit before the people here, I allow myself to be conformed to the world far too often and pray for a transforming of my mind. I'll pray that for all of us. That we would allow you to transform our minds so that we can offer to you something worth offering. God, we thank you. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your forgiveness of us. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to mimic that in how we interact with other people. In your name I pray, amen.